This is the podcast Going Beyond Salvation, and this is your host, Jess Robinson, and we are looking at the book of Acts today. Um, We've been looking at it, and we're now in chapter 19, and I just kind of love this thing because I love the, the book of Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books, and it's actually to the church of Ephesus, and this is where, uh, you know, we kind of see the, the, the church of Ephesus come from is in 19 and 20. We know that Apollos had started off in, the, um, in Ephesus before he met um, Paul and, or he, before he had met Apoll- or Priscilla and Aquila. Quilia before he had gone there and so he had already been preaching there you know about salvation but there was incomplete and there's just several things that we can learn about because a city is one I mean it's to the point that we see in the book of Acts that the people there you know they start a riot because and it's the idol makers because people start throwing away the idols. We see the work that happens of how Christ changes people's lives that they're throwing away idols. You know, it, Ephesus, you know, was a, it was a huge spiritual conflict in that time. Um, and we see that, you know, you know, the city of Ephesus was one of the world's greatest cities. It, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. You know, there was the Temple of Artemis or Diana. And it was, you know, it's known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, the image was said to have, you know, fallen from the sky in a time so, so ancient that no one knew of its true origin. You know, sexual license and the practice of the occult were associated with the worship of Artemis. So winning this city was huge. And so for one thing, you know, there was just several things of what it took to win this battle for the city. One thing, it was timing. We see that Paul was originally offered to come to Ephesus and he declines and he says, You know, if I will come back, if it is God's will. So he waited for God's will, you know, at, so, you know, we see at, apparently at the start of the second missionary journey, Paul had wanted to go to Asia where Ephesus was the leading city. The Holy Spirit had forbidden him. At the end of the second missionary journey, Paul went to Ephesus, but declined to stay for a longer period of time. He told them he would return later if God willed it. So the Holy Spirit's timing was superior to Paul's. Paul would have moved progressively in a westerly direction, but from city in Antioch, the Holy Spirit moved him far away to the west side of the Aegean Sea to plant a series of strong European churches. So we see that the Holy Spirit's purpose was for Paul to be in to be in the center directing the spiritual affairs of the churches that had been established on the flanks of Ephesus. You know, and at the same time Paul was engaged in building 
with unusual supernatural power, the largest church he had ever pioneered. In terms of the Gentile mission, that church was destined to be second only to Syria and Antioch. So the Lord brought Paul to Ephesus when he had completed founding churches to the east and west. And God wanted to use Paul at Ephesus for an extended period of time. So, you know, prior to Corinth, we know that Paul never stayed long as a missionary in one place. You know, his growing experience in church planning, you know, prepared him for a longer period of ministry in Ephesus that we see. And at the end of the second missionary journey, when Paul stopped at Ephesus, he, he may have been too exhausted to stay there for, four, for three years. So he had to have rest and renewal. Now, after the early phases of the Spirit's plan, Paul was allowed to begin the attack on the fortress of darkness in Ephesus. So in order for God to be at work, we have to have an inner sense of guidance of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. You know, he, you know, he held, you know, Ephesus held the greatest challenge and opportunity of Paul's ministry. So it's like in any part of, you know, if you want to reach to your town, timing is a huge part of it. It's letting the Holy Spirit move. Um, You know, recently our, you know, our church got to participate. Um, They partnered with Convoy Hope and, um, and distributing meat to people. And I wasn't able to participate because it was primary election. I had to work and all of that um, when it ended up happening. And it actually, there was like things that were just not working out. And it was like, what the heck? Well, it actually worked out in so many people. Like there was such a line of cars backed up all the way in it and we had the police department working with our church to help traffic move smoothly because there were so many people so desperate and we know that these people this was the right timing because for this to happen because there are so many people and we're we're looking for that you know it's about timing you know, if you want to reach to your city, it's critical to attend prayer on all decisions about where to minister or spend time. And, you know, Paul at this point was perfectly positioned. Uh, he had the experience he needed and had been tested in early battles on the missionary journeys. And Ephesus was now centered between the thriving churches Paul had founded on the first and second missionary journeys. The next thing is is template. Because, you know, we know as a template, it's a pattern or mold used as a guide to form, form something, you know. We see that this template was found in Paul's encounter with the 12 Ephesian disciples in Acts 19, verse, verses 1 through 7. You know, we know that Apollo, Apollos had been in Ephesus. He was a Jew. He was a native of Alexandria, Egypt. And he was learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. However, he didn't know about Jesus. And, 
you know, he only knew the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquilia had taken Apollos aside, you know, and, and worked with him. Now these 12 disciples, you know, that Paul encountered in Ephesus, they were possibly the fruit of Apollos, uh, Apollos' teaching prior to, to meeting Priscilla and them. And just because they have only the knowledge of John's baptism. So, you know, the key to reaching any place is starting with a fired up core. Paul knew that if the church was to grow at Ephesus, it had to start as the Jerusalem church had with the template of spirit baptized believers. That's because we see another, he, they end up getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so... You know, and we notice here with Paul, he, he doesn't tell the 12 that they had nothing. Um, and he didn't leave them with this, the status quo. You know, he, you know, he just asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And it opened up the door for him to, you know, all of that. And as, as Pentecostals, as believers... We should be able to do the same thing, too, asking people that. You know, if you're going to have a powerful church, you have to begin with a powerful core. You know, you can't wait for the church to get big to expect something powerful to happen. You have to start with the template of a core of spirit-filled believers. You have to have those, you know, that foundation, you know, before you can start building. You know, we, you start with a strong foundation when you're building a house and you go from there before, before you start adding more. Then we go into teaching. You know, his method of ministry was a content-based apologetic dialect. You know, and we see in Acts 19, verse 8, you know, we're told that he argued persuasively. He dialogued and persuaded. He had answers for people's questions. He presented those answers knowledgeably and passionately. You know, today we do almost anything to reach people except present answers to, to head and heart questions. And it is true. There are many especially millennials that have left the church and it was because they said we got turned off because nobody was asking our questions they were answering our questions you know they had questions about sexuality they had questions about you know different things about the spiritual realm and they had you know they had so many questions but many elders of the church, you know, and it's sad. Many elders of the church just threw up their hand and said, don't ask questions. They wouldn't answer these questions or even acknowledge that. I know my husband was one. He, he struggled for a long time because he sat there and said, nobody answered my questions. And that is so much, you know, I sit here and I, and I work with youth and most teenagers, you think, oh, they wouldn't have these questions. They, their questions are all dumb. No, I have met teenagers who have asked the most profound questions. And then I sit there going, sometimes I go, I will look into this and I will answer, you know, at the next youth group meeting 
or I'll message you on Facebook, whatever, you know, because they have serious questions, especially today. And I'm like gearing up for youth group coming up because we are going to start meeting again. And I'm going like, they're going to ask a lot of questions about these riots, probably about racism. That is in the back of my mind going, where do we stand as a church as that? Because we have to address that. We have to talk about these questions that these, these millennials have. And even the younger generation that is coming up, they're going to have serious questions because they're seeing it in school. You know, they're seeing it on TV. So they're going to honestly have questions. And if we're not the one answering them, the world's going to end up answering their questions. And it's going to be the wrong way, the wrong foundation that they're going to have. And so we have to, as believers, start off, especially in our city, you know, getting, especially with our younger generation, you know, and I was, you know, I heard somebody one time say, well, it's just the older generation that, you know, God's going to use in this time. I'm like, no, he's going to use both the younger and the younger generation. That is his plan. He doesn't, you know, just set aside the younger generation and say, well, you know, when you get older, no, we are coming to the end times and he's going to use everybody. It does not matter. You know, age does not matter to God. I know that there are people like parents that have said that they had migraines and their kids who had heard about Jesus healing people and, and Bible class, you know, and in Sunday school class, goes and prays and says, in Jesus' name, may this headache be healed, and then their headache is gone. They haven't even taken any ibuprofen or anything. So God can use, you know, even a young kid. So, you know, we see that he answers these questions. You know... If we're going to build a solid church, we we must do it with content, you know. We you know, many rely too much on music, experience and external things, but Paul's message was interactive and apologetic. You know, nothing wrong with music, nothing wrong with experience. But there's a balance. You have to have a balance. Which is hard, you know, it's a balancing act. And you always have to kind of just be in tune of, oh, I think we're doing too much of this. We need to kind of hold back on. And we notice that he taught in three locations in Ephesus. He taught for three months in the synagogue. We always notice that Paul always goes to the synagogue. The only time, you know, so he ends up going to the synagogue. He always goes to the Jews first. Then he speaks for two years in the hall of Tyrannus. And then, you know, and we know that he spoke daily, you know, what would have been like 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's during the five hours of siesta, essentially. And, you know, so if you think about it, he taught for five hours a day, five days a week for 48 weeks. It added up to 1,200 hours of teaching in one year. That's 2,400 hours for a full two-year stay. You know, if you think about that, if the church is going to have a significant impact on its community, 
we have to commit significant time to learning. You know, we can't build a church on a one or two hour Sunday morning service. That's why, you know, a, a church has, you know, Sundays, you know, they have Sunday evenings or they have Bible studies. Um, just different things like that. It's about, you know, getting into the teaching. Then we know that Paul taught from house to house. You know, learning is important, especially for those who want to minister, who want to evangelize. If you want to witness, it's about learning. You cannot give out what, what you do not take in. Finally, you know, there's also team. You know, we know that Paul had a team. That it's not just one person. He built up a team. A huge part of being in a church and a church having importance in a city. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the deacons. They're raising up people in their church to be leaders. They're, you know, raising up their youth to do missions or whatever it is. It's raising people up to do what God has called them to do. And that's what Paul did. He was about building others up. We see that with, with Timothy. We see it with Timothy a lot. You know, there's several letters in the New Testament that are written to Timothy because he was raising Timothy up. And Timothy was young, and he was the one that dealt with Ephesus. He was the one that took over, and, and Paul was there. You know, he didn't leave him, you know, on his own. He was there in writing to encourage him, you know, to continue on, even when he felt intimidated. And so that's a huge thing about Ephesus. Then we have toil, you know. We already know what he was doing in his afternoons and evenings. That was work enough, but... What was he doing in the morning? We we know that um, Acts nineteen twelve refers to Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons. It was a you know a handkerchief was a sweat rag, and it was tied around the head to keep sweat from pouring down into the workers' eyes. So he was he was working, you know, and he didn't just sit there and teach. He worked. And in all of that. So Paul chose not to make money from anyone, even other Christians. You know, in the review of his ministry, Paul did not focus on the miracles, but on the mundane. And he was more concerned that leaders imitate his selfless lifestyle than chase after the spectacular. And he never co converted money into miracles. You know, his money came not from miracles, but from hard work. And so that's a huge thing. Tears. You know, there's going to be tears. You know, we know, he says, you know, I, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews. And that's in Acts 20, verse 19. You know, in spite of Paul's hard work, he never ceased to have a tender heart. And 
This is sometimes the most neglected aspect of the church's emphasis on spiritual for- warfare today, love. You know, it's from here in Ephesus that, you know, we have that famous, you know, chapter that is used in we- weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tons of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all ministries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. You have to have love. And one of the things Christ has dealt with me is if you can't receive my love, you can't give out love. And so that's a huge part, you know, in a church is having love, having a love and passion for those who are not going to church, having a a passion. And the Lord puts those on your heart. It's not your own. You can't work it up. The God, God is the one that puts it on you. Tinder. And when you think about Tinder, you know, it's a flammable substance that can be used as kindling. And... It's something that incites or inflames. You know, the sweat rags and aprons leaving Paul's workshop were tender. So, for what God was doing in Ephesus, and we see in verses 19, or chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, we see that God's doing extraordinary miracles, and people are bringing handkerchiefs and aprons so that he can touch him and they would take it to the sick. That is something that is still done today. <laughs> Just so you know, there are some people that do that. They go to some some people with healing ministries and they will take rags and stuff to to have them touched so that they can take it back to their loved one or somebody they they know that needs to be healed. You know, we see Paul was doing all the right things, the human things. You know, if the church is to go beyond normal growth, there must be God things. And we see there's this watershed moment that incur, you know, occurs and it involves with the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. And it was probably, he was probably self-appointed. And we see that he took out the lifestyle of Ephesus going into the occult and somehow Jesus became part of that incantation. And... I always was so confused with this whole story of the the sons of Sceva, and I didn't really think about that until I really started studying deeper, and now I totally understand. So this is the watershed moment, and so they do this incantation, and this demon just says, you know, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And they, this demon beats the crap out of these people but it opens up the eye of the people because we see that they start taking their stuff it's the most publicly effective miracle Paul's nearly three years at Ephesus but he didn't have a thing to do with it we see that you know and he didn't waste time finding or condemning the sons of Sceva you know we don't have the time 
you know, to identify and chasing down all the counterfeits. You know, we see that the incident has two effects. It affected the general public. You know, they held the name of Jesus in high honor at this point. They were seized with fear and they learned not to treat the name of Jesus lightly. Second, it affected the believers. Many, and it says in the, in, in the book of Acts, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their squirrels together and burned them publicly. So here, so there was believers that had their one foot in the occult and one foot with God. They were kind of deciding which one they wanted. Um, you know, one of the great problems in the church today is the lack of difference between the lives of believers and believer, unbelievers. You know, and I've had to tell people, and I told kids, you can't. It's the whole, you can't serve two masters. You can't put one foot here and one foot, you know, in, in the door of salvation. You're either in all the way or you're out. There's no gray area. So, so we see this, and then there's the thorn. We, it, it's likely that Paul wrote Second Corinthians, and one of that, you know, from Macedonia at the close of the third missionary journey, and there's a thorn that that he talks about, and it's kind of referring to this. You know, and this thorn is not a rose thorn, but a stake capable of impaling flesh. You know, and sometimes thorns, we can't get them out on our own. And it's God who has to do it. And we see, you know, sometimes hardship is, is a part of it. And we see that in this, in this, with, you know, he's, they can there's a riot because, the people are not going to idols. They're not buying idols anymore. And so it's a starting to affect those who were making these idols. It was affecting their income. There was transparency. You know, we see he tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 18, You know how I live, lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. He had no secrets, timeouts for seasons of sin, laziness, or self-indulgence. He was on duty all the time. He had been with them the whole time. Who he was and what he did was transparent, open for all to see. He was no fair-weather pastor. And then there was threat. He, you know, we see that Paul warns the Ephesian elders of threats that they would face as they fought to bring light to the darkness of the city. Even as a church, we have to watch. There are people that come in, you know, wolves that come in in sheep's clothing, and they want to bring in bad doctrine slowly. Or they want to bring division, you know. And it's sad. You have to pray for these people because it's the enemy working in their lives. And that... And we have to be that way. We have to be careful. And so that's pretty much it with, you know, Ephesus. I really wanted to focus on Ephesus because it's a huge, huge part in the book of Acts. And I'm excited when we get into the book of Ephesians and, and talk about that. But 
So we're going to take a quick break and continue on just finishing up his journey. So we continue on in Acts, and after Ephesians, we see that he kind of makes this final journey, and it's on a journey back to Rome, and there's just some churches that he ends up going back through. And all the time, he there's several warnings to him that, you know, as he's heading back to Jerusalem, that he's, you know, going to be, you know, taken prisoner in Jerusalem. And, you know, people go, well, he was going against God's will because, you know, he was warned. But, you know, we see there that he doesn't, he goes, you know, that he's, he's willing, you know, he, he was willing to go back. He was willing to die for the gospel. And some people go wonder what would have happened if he, you know, if he, you know, if he, he would have heeded the warning, would he have been missing God's call in his life? I think so. I think he would have missed the, the chance to reach to the, those in Rome because he went all the way to Rome and he was also reached, you know, we see here and we're going to see later on that he starts reaching out to a lot of leaders. He, he gets to the chance to share his testimony with leaders and he starts persuading leaders. And I, if I believe one of them, the wife actually ends up becoming a believer when we find out in history. So he arrives at Jerusalem. And once again, there's this smear campaign saying that he's essentially, you know, saying that he had, you know, he's teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling People not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. And so they go, you know, take these people to the... He he tells the people to essentially go to... You know, he, he's essentially told by, you know, the, the believers, you know, go to the temple, take these people, have them do the vow, just to show that, you know... You're not against, you know, the law of Moses. But there's this smear campaign and they find a way to say, you know, he, he desecrated the temple. He, you know, he desecrated our temple. And so he's arrested. And there's such, you know, there's such a, a huge mob and it's just chaos but he takes his time, Paul takes his time to share his testimony about who he was, you know, his, and that's how it is. It's simply, you know, we, we think we have to have this all figured out. And, and a lot of times it's just essentially share what God has done, how you became a Christian that's how it is. But it caused such a, an upri uprising, especially when he says the word Gentiles, because think about this, the Jews in their mind, as the Gentiles will never get close to God, that they are the only elect. 
And so the Romans come in and they take him away because they're trying to kill him. And as we know, they, the Jewish people had freedom other than to kill somebody. It had to be the, the Romans that made that decision. The Roman governor had to make that decision. And so they take him and, and they're going to like flog him because, you know, they, they don't care. They think he's a Jewish person, so they're going to flog him to get answers from him. And he goes, no, I'm a Roman citizen. And they realize, oh, no. <laughs> and so they they go, no, no, okay. And so he goes before the Sanhedrin, which, you know, in it's kind of equivalent to our, our U.S. Supreme Court today. You know, they he goes there, and we see... I like what happens in chapter 23, essentially. He, it's, you know, his, his extended imprisonment begins in Jerusalem. But I love chapter 23, how it starts. Um, he essentially, I just love how he goes to the Sanhedrin. And he knows that there's both Sadducees and Pharisees. And he makes... He makes a comment that gets him divided because he's like, you know, you know, he, it just says, you know, that Paul knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope and the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And it's just because the Sadducees do not believe in the erection, that there's neither angels nor spirits. And he's he just has fun with that, I guess. I just love that part where he just he notices it and makes that comment. And it was just like, I just still love it. Every time I come across that, I just start laughing because what he does. But he essentially stands, you know, and, and the Romans like take him back going, okay, this is not, this is not good. And we see that the Lord, he, he comes near Paul and he says, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify about me in Rome. That's essentially, you know, in, in our reading that we came across here in the book of Acts and so I just, you know, God was comforting him that even though he was in prison, the thing, things seemed uncertain. God was like, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you to Rome. And we're, I think he holds on to that promise because so many things happen that would make you think, okay, God, are you telling me the truth? And that's the way, you know. We get things in our lives, promises that God has for us. We have desires and dreams that he's placed upon our hearts. And it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. But we have to stand on what God promises to us and, and what he has spoken over our lives, what the word says about what he says about us in our lives. We have to stand on those things and stand in faith, even through the storms. And so for the next podcast we're going to go over quite a few of the chat it's going to be a huge thing but it's kind of going to all just sum up into one 
But we're going to start in Acts 23 and go through um, in verse 12 and go through Acts 28 verse, uh, verse 16. And so stay tuned and we will stay tuned for the next Old Testament podcast.